Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The principles of individual economic and political freedom, private enterprise, and limited representative government were fundamental to the vision of our founder, Herbert Hoover, and remain as compelling now as they were more than a century ago. A preeminent research center, the institution has remained steadfast in its commitment to finding solutions grounded in history, data, and logic to the many difficult challenges before us. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from some of our distinguished scholars on a wide array of domestic and international issues. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you find value in today's conversation. As a reminder, we will be taking questions, and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is entitled Spies, Lies, and Algorithms with Amy Ziegart. Amy is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she directs the Robert and Mary Moster National Security Affairs Fellows Program. She is also a professor of political science at Stanford University and a contributing editor, editor to the Atlantic Magazine. She previously served as co-director of the Stanford Cyber Policy Program. She served on the Clinton administration's National Security Council staff and as a foreign policy advisor to the Bush-Cheney 2000 presidential campaign. Amy is an award-winning author and has been featured by the National Journal as one of the 10 most influential experts on intelligence reform. Amy, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Amy, the, the intelligence community and the, the various parts of it have, have been discussed ad nauseum uh, in the press and in the public for the past three or four years. You know, and frankly, there's a lot of distrust and myth about the intelligence age, what the intelligence agencies actually do. And that could hurt, of course, our national security. Why is this such an important inflection point for the intelligence community in the United States? You're right, Tom. Everyone always uh, says it's a time for reform of the intelligence community, but this time it's really true. You know, shortly after 9-11, I uh, was interviewing a number of intelligence officials, and one of them said something that I always remembered. He said his chief worry was that by the time we mastered the Al-Qaeda problem, would Al-Qaeda be the problem? And he was right. So 20 years after 9-11, what we're seeing is the, the convergence of two main challenges for the intelligence community, uh, threats and tech. On the threat landscape side, terrorism is still important, but you see a head spinning array of other challenges, competition with China, Russia, uh, information warfare. We see rogue states like North Korea, failed states and weak states, non-state actors, cyber threats, and now, of course, we have global challenges like climate change uh, and the pandemic. So the threat uh, landscape is far more complicated than it's been in the past, and that's a challenge for the community. But the second basket of issues I think many people aren't so well aware of, and that is that we've never been at a moment with so many breakthrough technologies at the same time. So we have the explosion of open source information and connectivity with social media and the internet. We mm -hmm. have incredible advances in artificial intelligence. We have quantum computing, which could undermine encryption, which is the security of our information online, and uh, biotechnology and a host of other technologies. And together, what all of these technologies are doing is democratizing intelligence. Mm -hmm. so intelligence used to be a superpower game. Right? The US and the Soviet Union really dominated that space. 
uh, with collecting and analyzing information. Now anybody can get access to a lot of information, uh, whether it's satellite imagery or Twitter feeds. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's eroding the, uh, could have the potential of eroding U.S. intelligence advantage in the world. Interesting. So in this democratization of intelligence and a world of ubiquitous information, how much do secrets still matter? Are secrets a part of what our intelligence community does? So secrets are always going to matter, but I think most people might be surprised to know that secrets have never been the majority of information in a typical intelligence product. Mm -hmm. Even in the Cold War, more than 50% of information in a typical intelligence report came from open source information or things that are in the public domain. They might not be easy to access, but they weren't classified. Mm -hmm. Today, that open source information is even more important to harness. And just to give you some idea, we think about cell phones, right? So more people this year have cell phones than running water. Right? Oh. We are that connected. And think about everyone with a cell phone is an intelligence collector. We take pictures and videos, we post them online, and that's a tremendous source of information. Mm -hmm. We think about uh, surveillance cameras, right? CCTV in major cities. Think about that as a source of information. Yeah. You think about satellite imagery, which used to be uh, controlled by governments, billion dollar satellites the size of a bus launched by the US and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Well, now middle schoolers are launching satellites into space, <laughs> right? And literally, they did on a SpaceX launch just a couple years ago. So, and now you can get uh, commercial satellite imagery for little or no cost. So. There is a tremendous amount of information that's just available in the world. An advantage increasingly is going to come to intelligence organizations that can make sense of it. But mm -hmm. secrets still are going to matter. They're always going to matter. And in some areas, they're going to matter a lot. So I'll just give you a couple of examples where sure. you can't get to insight without the secret, right? So Google Earth and commercial satellite imagery can get you really good images now. Mm -hmm. And maybe Google Earth and other satellite companies can tell you about suspected nuclear sites in North Korea. Yeah. But they can't tell you what's inside the building. And they can't tell you what's inside Kim Jong-un's head. Mm -hmm. A lot of intelligence is about trying to ascertain intentions of our foreign adversaries. And secrets are the way to get to that, not open source. Yeah. Similarly, with the uh, Russian election interference information warfare campaign in 2016, Right? There was a lot that was openly available. Facebook detected weaponization of social media, for example. But how did the US know that Putin orchestrated this campaign? A human source inside the Kremlin, which has been publicly reported in the New York Times. And that source had to be exfiltrated from Russia. Secrets are always gonna matter to get inside the, the intentions and of uh, leadership. But open source and the ability to, to understand the insight from open information is going to matter more. Yeah, interesting. So with all this open source and social media and all this publicly available information, uh, what sets the intelligence community 17 agencies apart from, say, CNN or Twitter? What's the new value proposition for the intelligence community today? That's a question, Tom, a lot of people are wondering about. And you know, one of the things that I noticed when I went to Strategic Command in Omaha uh, a couple of years ago was if you go to the battle deck, this is where our nuclear forces are commanded from. If you go to their battle deck, several stories underground, they've got big displays on the wall with classified feeds. But when I went there, they also had Twitter streaming right into the battle deck. 
So that real-time uh, news and social media is getting right into the hands of policymakers. So what's the value proposition of intelligence agencies in this media environment? Yeah. I think it's two things. The first is that the intelligence agencies tailor their information to answer questions that policymakers want answers to. Mm -hmm. So you can query Google and it's going to spit the same answer out for you as it is for me, questions that they anticipate. But the president is going to ask specific questions and the intelligence community has to give him specific answers. And a lot of those questions are really different than what other sources are going to look at. They're contingent questions. If the United States ratchets up pressure in the South China Sea, what are the likely responses from Beijing, for example? Right. If we do this uh, against this country, what will the country's response be? So the intelligence community has unique capabilities to do that. But the second thing that the intelligence community does that nobody else can do is marrying that open source information with secrets, right? It's the synthesis of that information that can really give decision advantage to a policymaker. Nobody else can do that. Yeah, that's amazing. Your answer uh, causes me to ask a question that Patrick placed to us. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 100, where would you place the use or importance of intelligence in the formulation of U.S. foreign policies? Boy, that, I wish I could answer that question definitively. I think it varies by issue, it yeah. varies by policymaker, right? And it varies by time. In some cases, intelligence is the pivotal factor. So uh, where it's 100, Right. Think about the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Right. Yeah. It took a decade. It took all sorts of intelligence gathering and analysis, uh, even, um, uh, you know, from uh, getting eyes on the Abbottabad compound to satellite imagery when they still couldn't figure out whether the man that they called the pacer walking around his garden, who was tall and thin, was it actually Osama bin Laden? Right, and the estimates in the final meeting with the president range from 40%, we think that man has been Laden, to 95%. Mm -hmm. So, and it was a funny story. So at one point the president turns and he says, only 40%, and Mike Leiter, the director of the National Counterterrorism Center responded, Mr. President, it's 38% more than we've ever had before. <laughs> so, so in that case, intelligence was really pivotal to the operation. In other cases, not so much, where there's much greater uncertainty uh, and there's less fidelity about what the intelligence means. So it varies pretty dramatically. Yeah. And sometimes I guess it matters, but it matters in the wrong way because it's erroneous, like the weapons of mass destruction intelligence. Right. Intelligence agencies get it wrong. They're not, they don't wield crystal balls, right? They wield hypotheses. And those hypotheses are sometimes proven wrong. Uh, but they do the best they can to get the policymaker decision advantage and to reduce the uncertainty so they can make better decisions. Yeah. Amy, I'm intrigued of your discussion of publicly available information and open source intelligence and how it's useful. Can you give some more examples of that to, so the audience can understand the importance of that to modern intelligence? Yeah, so there are a couple of examples that really send home just how powerful open source can be. In some cases, open source is even more valuable than secrets can be. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorites, Tom, is in 2014, when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine, the most compelling evidence that came out wasn't from any secret channel. It was from selfies posted by Russian troops. So they took, like everyone likes to do, they took pictures of themselves, and they posted those pictures online. 
And those photos yeah. were time-stamped and they had Ukrainian highway signs in the background. I mean, you know, it's right there if you're just looking for it. Uh, more recently, a really interesting example of open source intelligence happened just this month over 4th of July weekend when there was a fire uh, that the Iranians claimed was a construction shed and a small fire uh, at Natanz. Mm -hmm. And within hours, this, uh, this sort of open source ecosystem sprang into action. The fire was so bright, it was detected by a weather satellite in space. That information became available on Twitter. Former uh, government analysts and, and non-governmental experts got other imagery. And within hours, they concluded that the shed wasn't a shed. It was an Iranian nuclear centrifuge assembly facility. Mm -hmm. And the fire was a major fire, probably an explosion, uh, that had done major damage to Iran's nuclear program. Yeah. So, and all of this within the course of one day went from uh, a posting on Twitter to a news uh, conference with the Israeli prime minister where he was asked, is Israel responsible for an attack on this facility? And of course, the Israelis didn't say either way. Yeah. Amazing. If you just joined us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Amy Ziegart. Amy, let's, let's go to another form of technology that you think is revolutionizing the intelligence community, and that's AI. Uh, I'm going to ask a windy question and take as long as you want to answer it. What's good, bad, and misunderstood about artificial intelligence? How is AI likely to affect intelligence? And what do machines do better than humans and humans do better than machines? Well, you've asked a meaty question or a windy question, as you say, I'll, yeah. I'll try to give you a windy answer to that, yeah. Tom. <laughs> so I think it's a really important question. There's a lot of talk these days about AI, like it's sort of magic fairy dust. If we sprinkle a little AI on this weapon system or on this problem, then we'll get the magic answer. And the reality is that AI is really good at some things and actually really bad at other things. And we need to understand its, uh, the opportunities uh, and the risks of AI. So what's AI great for? AI is great for pattern recognition, right? So if you have a lot of known data about something, AI algorithms are really good at figuring out uh, patterns. So is that photo really you? or is it a relative of yours? AI can do that by combing through lots and lots and lots of photos. Uh, what's the best move at chess? AI is really good at that. Yeah. Right? So AI is great at that. AI is also really good at sorting through massive volumes of disparate data sets to see relationships that humans have a hard time seeing. So for example, who's likely to pose a credit risk? If you pull together data sets about where you live, what your spending patterns are, and a variety of other factors, AI can help establish correlations that yield insight, right? So you can imagine for intelligence, one possibility would be who's a potential asset for an asset for American intelligence agencies to recruit based on uh, whether they have uh, credit problems, whether they have health problems, et cetera. So AI can help pull together those different data sets and see correlations. Mm -hmm. AI is also really good at separating wheat from chaff, right? So a lot of analyst work in the intelligence community is being overwhelmed by data. And so AI can actually reduce that tasking of the mundane task so that humans can focus on things that require creativity and judgment that humans are good at. I'll give you an example. Yeah. A couple of years ago, one of the intelligence agencies established a partnership 
with the University of Missouri to develop a machine learning algorithm to try to identify surface-to-air missile sites in China. And so they did this, and it was a huge amount of territory. It was 90,000 square kilometers, or about three quarters of the size of North Korea. And they competed, the humans and the machines. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the AI algorithm and the humans, they, did this, they had about the same accuracy. They identified surface air missile sites over this huge swath of territory with 90% accuracy. Mm -hmm. But the machine did it 80 times faster than the humans. Mm -hmm. The AI can really reduce the crushing load on human analysts to free them up to do higher level tasks. So that's all on the plus side of the ledger. Yeah. What's AI bad at? Yeah. AI is really not good at rare things because you need data from the past to be able to understand the correlations for the future. Mm -hmm. But lots of intelligence is about rare events. Right. So what are the odds that North Korea will give up its nuclear weapons program based on the past? Well, there's only one data point. There's only one country that developed the bomb and then gave it up, and that was mm -hmm. South Africa. AI is not going to help you answer that question. Yeah. So AI is not good at causal analysis. It can tell you correlation, what trends with what, but not what causes what. Humans are better at causal yeah. analysis. And perhaps most important from a policy yeah. perspective is AI cannot explain how it gets to the decisions or conclusions or results that it does. So imagine if you go into the president and you say, Mr. President, I believe China is about to attack Taiwan. And he says, well, how do you know that? And you say, well, the AI told me. Right? The president's not, not necessarily going to believe you. If we think about, you know, how often do you trust your um, Google navigation system to get where you want to go? Maybe not all the time, right? So AI is not always accurate. And it can be very brittle and it can be biased, right, or erroneous in the results that it gives. So explainability is a key limitation uh, of AI. Yeah. Amy, this reliance on technology in the intelligence community kind of causes people to ask questions about where the intelligence community is going to get the talent to manage the application of these technologies. Uh, Maggie asked a great question on the, uh, in this regard. Uh, she says, considering the new aspects, challenges of security you've just mentioned, mainly caused by technological development, is it right to say that improving or enhancing civil military cooperation might be extremely valuable? Oh, that, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, one of the things that I did with one of the National Security Affairs Fellows at Hoover is we held, named Kevin Childs, he's a, an Air Force officer, cyber warrior. We mm -hmm. held a focus group of uh, Stanford undergraduates and we, catalog we cataloged what we said was the greatest uh, national security divide hurting the country wasn't Democrat-Republican, it was Silicon Valley in Washington. Right? We need to bridge the divide between the tech community out here and policymakers in Washington. So Kevin and I held this focus group of undergraduates to try to better understand how we could bridge this divide. Uh, and we learned some really important things about, you know, young people today are actually driven by mission. They are patriotic, but they also, there's a reluctance, right? And try to understand where that reluctance comes from and how to bridge that divide is really important. And H.R. McMaster, my Hoover colleague, and Raj Shah and I have been leading at Hoover a tech track to dialogue mm -hmm. to bring policymakers and tech folks together to develop some actionable ways that we can have 
talent flow back and forth between these communities and better understand each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a critically important piece of this puzzle as the question uh, suggests, technology is just part of the solution. We have to have the talent to be able to make use of that technology. Yeah, the trust factor is different, right? Five years ago, this dialogue would not have gone well. Now it's gotten better. What's your, what's your sense of where the civilian military dialogue is going? So it's getting a lot better. I think the Snowden revelations really bred lots of distrust between the Valley and Washington. Uh, and you could feel it uh, when, when folks came out here. I remember I held a, a quiet off the record dinner between national security officials in Washington and some local tech leaders. And one of the tech leaders said, uh, are you gonna serve me my papers before they serve us our salads before we sat down to dinner? So it was, suffice it to say, a prickly time uh, between these two sides. What we've seen is a lot better conversation and dialogue between the two sides, driven in part, I think, by the China threat. It's pretty clear uh, that we're all in this together as Americans and China poses a rising uh, and serious threat. And I also think it's because both sides have made a much uh, stronger effort to try to understand one another. So one senior military official said uh, that he used to come out here and talk in Defense Department words, defeat, destroy, degrade. Those are words that tech entrepreneurs are not so comfortable with. And so now when he comes out to the Valley, he talks about patriotism, mm -hmm. loyalty, defending the homeland, right? Commitment to country. And that's a better dialogue that he's finding with tech leaders. Interesting. Bill asked an interesting question about the talent flow between the two sectors. He says, do people go to work for the government first and then go to the private industry or is, or is the opposite true? So there is some flow in both directions, but we need more flow. So a, a lot of concern is that people go into government, they have great skills, right? So they're mathematicians or they're computer scientists. Uh, and then they leave government to uh, come out here to the valley and start companies and, and do things like that. That's not all bad. Right. The, the challenge is the companies they start, can we get their products back into the government so that the government can make use of those innovations? That's where the friction is. And as I often like to say, Tom, I think that these talent programs need to think not just about how can we bring people into the government, because this generation of young people, as you know, doesn't think about a career in one place, right? They move yeah. around. But it's how can we create ambassadors that can uh, influence how private sector firms think about public service, not just work in the public sector forever. So we need lifers and ambassadors, not just right. one. Right. So the current situation is we have an intelligence community that needs to change to reflect new technology and a changing threat environment away from terrorism to other things. What are the barriers to change in the intelligence community? What needs to happen to make that necessary changes occur? Oh, there are lots of barriers to change, but I think I would focus on really three. Uh, the first is inertia. Change is always hard. Uh, the most powerful interest group in Washington is the status quo. It's hard for all of our organizations to change and government agencies are no exception. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, Tom, I wrote a book about why the intelligence community uh, was unable to adapt to the rise of terrorism 10 years before 9-11. And what I found was that intelligence agents, in particular the CIA and the FBI, were aware of the threat and they were aware of the need to change, but they couldn't get from here to there 
in time. So inertia, there are always hard uh, challenges to reforming from within. But the second, I think, is unique to this moment. The second barrier is plumbing. What do I mean by that? Right. Well, technological change requires architectures, right, to make, uh, make uh, systems interoperable and to upgrade them uh, quickly. And yet the intelligence community is saddled with these custom-built, bespoke IT systems that don't talk to each other and that are yeah. really hard to modernize. And so that is a non-trivial problem to get to the place where we need to go. And then I say the third barrier to change is incentives. So I'm a political scientist. We always think about incentives. Right. No, no legislator wins an election by vowing to reform the org chart of the intelligence <laughs> community. It's just not an electoral winner. So it takes really courageous leadership, both inside the intelligence community, and, and they're trying to change. I don't want to discount the efforts inside. Lots of people inside the community are working hard to try to change but it takes political leadership by elected officials too. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Amy, you, you spent a lot of time researching and working with intelligence agencies. I want you to share with us what you think are the most common myths about the intelligence community. And I want you to start with a question from John. John says the press often refers to the intelligence community as a connected and singular institution. Is it really that monolithic? That's a great question. No, it's really not that monolithic. And in fact, even within one agency, you have very different uh, divisions with different cultures, right? If you say, what's the culture of the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, that depends. Are you talking about the Directorate of Operations? Or are you talking about analysts? So they're very different cultures, even within uh, the intelligence community. In terms of myths, I often ask my students, since I'm writing this book for, uh, that's supposed to be a general audience book and a textbook, so I, I uh, use focus groups of students a lot, what do they think is going on in the intelligence community? And what I hear is, and what I've learned in my research is that spy-themed entertainment uh, has become adult education for most Americans, right? So what we see on TV and what we see in the movies is often the only way that we understand what's happening in the intelligence community. And that's filled with all sorts of myths. Um, so one of the things I did is I looked at uh, the top 25 universities in US News and World Report. How many of them offer courses on US intelligence agencies? And the answer is not many. More, in fact, I found offer courses on the history of rock and roll uh, than intelligence which right. gives undergraduates, this is I often tell my students, it gives them a better chance of learning about U2 the band rather than U2 the spy plane. So that's a problem. But in terms of myths, you asked about myths, I think one of the biggest myths is that intelligence is secrets. Secrets are important in intelligence, but most intelligence reports are not filled with secrets. Mm -hmm. Intelligence is information that is designed to give leaders advantage, decision advantage. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that information is secret, as we've talked about, and sometimes it isn't. I think the second big myth is that intelligence makes policy, or intelligence officials are policymakers. They are not, and they should not be. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to give information to policymakers and then let the policymakers make the decision. Now, that's a contact sport, right? Intelligence and policy. But it's, there's a line that is drawn. Intelligence serves policymakers. Intelligence does not make policy. Mm -hmm. I think the third myth is that the intelligence community is out there as a rogue elephant running out of control without oversight. 
there have been dark days in the past of the intelligence community that came to light in the 1970s. But if we look at the more recent controversies like the Snowden revelations, there was not an intelligence community running out of control, doing its own thing and doing illegal things. The National Security Agency, for example, was found in a bipartisan review to have done nothing illegal with respect to the Snowden revelations. And in fact, NSA programs were briefed regularly to Congress and overseen by a foreign intelligence surveillance court. Mm -hmm. I think what's going on, and I've done national polling on this too, about trust in the community and oversight. I think what's going on is that the congressional intelligence committees typically oversee behind closed doors. They have classified briefings uh, and they have classified hearings. And the American people are increasingly uncomfortable with that model of oversight for things like uh, NSA programs. And so that behind closed doors oversight model is increasingly coming under strain. Hmm. Because it's lost its trust with the American voter or it's become too politicized given the nature of Congress today? I think it's probably, it's probably both, Tom. I mean, I think you see part of it, it's hard to know what's going on if it's all, and I recognize there are limits to what oversight can be done in public, right? There's only so much that can be publicly shown, but the partisanship doesn't help, right? We're in a hyper-partisan moment in this country. I think the Senate's been working really hard to remain bipartisan. You saw Senators Burr and Warner uh, mm -hmm. when, they co you know, when they were the chair and ranking uh, of the Intelligence Committee working really hard to be, as they say, hip to hip with mm -hmm. their bipartisan investigation. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that bipartisanship on the House side, and I think it hurts the intelligence community. Yeah. Let me ask you this. I mean, uh, Christopher asked the following question. What can the IC do, the, the intelligence community do to better ensure trustworthiness and the value of their operations? You read in the press oftentimes that members of the, the intelligence community will leak information deliberately to advance what appears to be political agendas. Is, is there any truth to that? And is there any attempt by the IC to kind of police that behavior amongst their members? So I think leaks have always been a problem. Typically, we find, typically what, what I see is that leaks come less often from the intelligence community and more often from White House and elected officials trying, yeah. to, trying to achieve advantage over others. The challenge though is um, the, that insider threats in the intelligence community, people like Edward Snowden, people like Chelsea Manning, are able to uh, illegally obtain and release lots and lots of information. It used, to take, it used to take a lot of effort to be a trader, right? You had to smuggle things out of your pants pockets because of classified documents or in trash bags, and it took a long time. But now Edward Snowden could download you know, millions of pages of documents uh, and release it. Uh, yeah. So it's the scale, the magnitude of those kind of breaches that I think is different today that's really mm -hmm. problematic for the intelligence community. Yeah, great. I have another question, but first I want to remind you you're listening to Hoover Senior Fellow Amy Ziegart. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at our website, hoover.org. Amy, you're finishing a book on intelligence and how emerging technologies are challenging the enterprise. What's been the most interesting revelation that you found so far? Well, it's been, there's I, every week I could give you a different answer, but yeah. let, let me just share a, a couple. Uh, while I'm focused on new technologies, I, I love history and I think history is a really important uh, influence on the future. 
And so one of the most interesting things that I've been learning is about just how important intelligence was the founding of this country. Uh, George Washington was an avid spy master. And in fact, his use of espionage and deception proved critical to winning the Revolutionary War. And so my favorite tidbit that I've uncovered in writing my history chapter of the intelligence community is how George Washington deceived the British uh, with French bread. Mm -hmm. So uh, it turns out at a critical moment in the war, Washington wanted to convince the British that he, he was keeping his army around New York, when in fact he wanted to secretly march south to that crucial battle at Yorktown. And in order to convince the British that he uh, was going to stay in New York, uh, he prepositioned French bake ovens in the New York area. Bread turned out to be French bread, turned out to be a major source of food for the troops. And so Washington figured if he, if he built French bake ovens around New York, well, the British would be convinced that his troops were going to stay put. And so that's what he did, and it worked. And so mm -hmm. that deception proved critical to winning the revolution. I'd add that Ben Franklin was a master of information warfare in his day, too. Mm -hmm. So Ben Franklin was a printer by trade, and he set up a print shop in his Paris basement. And he churned out fake newspaper stories uh, designed to inflame opinion throughout Europe uh, so that people would side with the rebels in uh, America against the British troops. Uh, so intelligence has a long history in this country, uh, and that's been fascinating for me to see on the sort of on the old uh, technology side or the history side. On the new tech side, what I have found fascinating is the application of open source intelligence to nuclear threats. There is a very uh, robust ecosystem, including with some of my colleagues uh, at Stanford, uh, who, uh, and this ecosystem is using really creative methods to harness open source information, social media, imagery, 3D modeling, to actually track nuclear threats uh, in ways that are revealing new information uh, and sharing information in ways that often US government agencies cannot. And so this is a really exciting ecosystem. It has its own challenges. Uh, once uh, a foreign uh, actor uh, can see that anybody can tell what their facilities, where their facilities are, they do new things to try to hide. Mm -hmm. So you can have countermeasures from uh, nuclear proliferators that can make tracking them more difficult. But this ecosystem has uh, real, uh, real promise for helping US intelligence agencies. Yeah, amazing. Uh, Amy, I wonder if you covered this in your book, if you're looking at this. Uh, there's been a major beef between the U.S. and China over IP theft, uh, and I presume that's happening in, in around, uh, around the world in other countries. Uh, ITSEC has a following question. What are we doing to avert the industrial intelligence of the Chinese and the Russians? Is that part of the task of our intelligence community to try to protect American IP? Well, it's certainly part of our intelligence communities remit to understand what's going on and to understand what the Chinese, the Russians, and others are doing. Uh, in terms of protecting IP, that's an interesting question, right? Whose job is it? Uh, mm -hmm. That gets into all sorts of jurisdictional issues with cybersecurity, right? So if you're the CEO of a company, uh, whose job is it to protect your IP, right? right? Uh, and and that's, a, that's a more difficult issue than, than you'd imagine. Um, so, yes, the intelligence community is uh, and should be very focused on how China in particular is trying to get economic, political, military advantage uh, by infiltrating, 
uh, different communities by spreading propaganda through places like Confucian Institutes uh, and by stealing intellectual property. But actually defending against those things, that's not what the intelligence community does. Interesting. Um, Amy, you have a question from Sinclair, which is given COVID-19, what kind of organizational changes should we see in the IC to address future biosecurity threats? And I guess I want to expand that generally. How is COVID affecting the intelligence community, their organization, the way they do their work? So I think COVID-19 is affecting both what the intelligence community is looking at and how the intelligence community is operating. On the what, uh, obviously global pandemic uh, threats are uh, higher on the list uh, now than they may have been in the past. Although the intelligence community, if you look at their annual threat assessments, has actually been warning about the risk of pandemic for several years now. So it is not true that the intelligence community didn't warn about the strategic threat of pandemics. They, they have warned for quite some time, but I think that's higher on the list now. I think also what, and I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine the intelligence community is taking a hard look at what's the impact of COVID-19 on geopolitics. So who's gonna be first off the mat uh, when this pandemic ends? Who's gonna recover the fastest? And what is the differential impact of COVID-19 on different countries around the world? That's a critical question for the intelligence community to begin to address. So that's the what question. Mm -hmm. The why or how the intelligence community is operating, I think, is going to be important as well. So because as we all are working from home, we're zooming into this virtual policy briefing, well, the intelligence community has had to do that too. Mm -hmm. And what that means if you're uh, an employee of an intelligence agency is you don't have access to your classified facility. Mm -hmm. You don't have access to the same classified computer systems you've got to figure out how to do your job in much more of an unclassified world. Mm -hmm. So 85% of the workforce of one of our major intelligence agencies I know spend two months or more working from home. Mm -hmm. That's a, just a sea change in how this workforce operates. So right. I know that there are efforts underway to capture what are the lessons learned from this experience. What can the community do differently that they never realized they could do in the unclassified space? So there's a silver lining to the dark COVID cloud, uh, which is that this is going to force the intelligence community yeah. to operate and think about how to operate in the unclassified space much faster than it otherwise would. Interesting. Uh, Amy, several of our viewers who are apparently undergraduates at America's universities took umbrage your characterization that they know more about rock and roll uh, than, than the, the American intelligence community. And they ask if you could recommend a book or some reading uh, to help them catch up. It's not their fault, right? It's our <laughs> fault. We need to be teaching more of these classes. So uh, I did not pay them to raise this question. Uh, the book, the reason I am writing this book is that I'm going to teach a course at Stanford on these issues. And I wanted, and I wanted to write this book so that other universities could offer classes as well. So the recommended reading would be called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms <laughs> Coming Soon to a Bookstore Near You. Um, but there, there are some other readings uh, out there. Mark Lowenthal's written a great uh, uh, book about the sort of basics of the intelligence business. I think one of the hard parts, if you're an undergraduate at a university not offering a class on intelligence, is there's a lot out there that is myth and misperception and really not accurate. You, if you go on Amazon and you look at all the books out there on the intelligence community, it's awfully hard to tell 
um, what the authoritative sources are from the ones that are just sort of peddling half-truths. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of myths about uh, the intelligence community. There are a lot of conspiracy theories. So it's hard to do it on your own, which is why I think it's even more important uh, that universities offer courses. Just as a side note, Tom, I had a research mm -hmm. assistant look at what high school students learn about intelligence. Yeah. And the answer is almost nothing. So if you look at AP exams in US government, we did over the past 10 years, I think there was one question that related to US intelligence operations. So high school students, even in the most advanced AP classes are actually learning about other parts of the US government, but not the intelligence community. Yeah, amazing. Amy, we're almost out of time, uh, but Carrie asked a question, which is a great wrap up question, and it's the following. If you had the authority and resources What's the one or two short run things that the US could do to materially improve its intelligence community? In other words, is there any low hanging fruit that we should be picking but are not? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know this, that this would constitute low hanging fruit, but I would have, if I could wave my magic wand, I would do three things. First, I would create a new agency dedicated to open source intelligence. And I say that reluctantly because we've talked about the 17 different agencies and how hard it is to coordinate them. Mm -hmm. But open source intelligence is never going to get the attention and the resources and the respect that it deserves and needs until it's its own standalone agency. Right now it's inside the CIA. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are, who are well versed in military history, that's like having the Air Force be part of the Army. Right. Yeah. The Air Force couldn't be the Air Force when it was part of the Army. There's a reason it was separated into its own service. And now we have aviation and technology in the Air Force getting the attention that it needs. Same thing's true with open source. Secrets reign supreme in the intelligence community. And mm -hmm. they always will unless there's a dedicated agency to really focusing on open source. So that's number one. Number two is the human capital piece. The intelligence community needs to really reduce the pain points so that the best and brightest folks can go in and out of the intelligence community more seamlessly and serve their country. Mm -hmm. And then the third is we need a strategy, right? Right now, there are pockets of great innovation inside the intelligence community, but there's no comprehensive strategy that's identifying what's the end goal, right? How do we know it when we get there? And how do we get from here to there? So, uh, so new open source center, uh, a tackle the human talent problem, and a comprehensive strategy that has the backing of both parties and leadership in Congress mm -hmm. and, the, and the White House to move forward. Great. Amy, thanks for joining us today. What an interesting discussion. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Tom, for having me. You bet. I want to remind everybody that our next Hoover, Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Tuesday, August 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time with Andrew Roberts, who will be talking about his new book, Leadership in War. Andrew is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's a renowned historian and best-selling author. Before I let you, let you go, I wanted to remind you that there will be another edition of Hoover Capital Conversations, discussing policy with policymakers, tomorrow, Wednesday, July 29th, at 1.30 p.m. Pacific time and 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. U.S. Senator Tom Cotton and Hoover Senior Fellow Victor Davis Hanson will be discussing America's challenges abroad at a time of plague, protest, and panic at home. To find out more and to sign up, please go to hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. Again, thank you for joining us today, and I hope to see you next time.